Hi, this is Julian Chambliss, and you're listening to another episode of Reframing History. Reframing History is a podcast project that I'm doing with Scott French, and we're talking about a project we're doing to rewrite the history of Winter Park, Florida. Really, it's a jumping off point to a broader discussion of history and community in the South. Uh, And so this episode in particular, we're going to talk a little bit about the meaning of New South and some of the things that inform how we're thinking about the question of telling the story of Winter Park within the historiography of a kind of New South. So I'm going to get Scott into this conversation and we're going to talk. Hey, Scott. Hey, Julian. Thanks for talking to me again for another episode of Reframing History. Happy to be here. And I can hear the dog in the background. It's, We're back at home. It's the fireworks. They've started. The dog, the dog <laughs> is celebrating the uh, eve of 4th of July along with our neighbors. There you go. Um, so if you... Just join us for the first time. Uh, my name is Julian Chambliss. I'm a professor of English and history at Michigan State University. And tell the people who you are, Scott. I am Scott French, and I'm director of public history. And I am the interim director, interim co-director of the Center for Humanities and Digital Research at University of Central Florida here in Orlando. That's long. <laughs> and we like, yeah, that's right. You're a man of many oh, titles. Man. Exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> so the History is a podcast conversation because um, we really haven't introduced any other voices into this um, between myself and Scott. Although I'm gonna, I'm gonna. This is a little foreshadowing. New voices are coming to the podcast. Great. <laughs> we need new voices. <laughs> new voices. I'm tired of my voice um, on this podcast. You, you, you'll have to fill me in on 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 who's coming in. I'm I'm excited. Oh yeah 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 yeah. I, I, I got a couple of I got a couple of things in the work. Um. So in, in in the world of podcasting, at least in this in terms of this particular right, podcast, right. I'm, I'm the executive producer. It's Scott's talent. Ah, right. talent. <laughs> <laughs> So today we're, 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 we're here, this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about um, New South, right? Because when we uh, describe this project of sort of rewriting the history of Winter Park, uh, we describe it as um, telling a tale of race, community, identity um, in the New South, right? Like that's one way we have described it. Mm-hmm. And we've also used the term in our conversation when we t- when thinking about uh, Winter Park, um, the importance of understanding the impact of a New South, a New South Florida economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so these are, these are concepts that mean something to historians, but what does that mean mm-hmm. to, to the general public? So I think the first and probably the most important thing we want to do is want to try to define what we mean when we say when when historians say new south mm-hmm. so i'm just gonna throw that out there scott because like well this is a chance for you to shine <laughs> well i'm, I'm thinking about this because i just uh was on a committee an ma thesis committee uh on a new south project today and and uh as i as i read it uh i was bringing myself back to graduate school and remembering that uh 
the key figure in sort of defining the New South was uh, an editor, the Atlanta Constitution editor, uh, Henry Grady, who, right. who took the message to the North that the South, uh, w- that the New South uh, was awaiting their investment. And what he was saying right. is that the South of slavery and the South of plantations and uh, rigid, uh, you know, aristocratic hierarchical order that that was dead and that a new South was born, was born uh, out of uh, emancipation and in fact, born out of the defeat of the Confederacy and really uh, telling these new England audiences that the South was safe for investment, that uh, it had a a great um, opportunities to, to modernize uh, through uh, industry, through, uh, a, a growing sort of in infrastructure, railroad networks, and that it had a very uh, important uh, asset, which was an African-American labor force that could be depended upon and that was right. stable and was not going to cause the kinds of problems that maybe European immigrant laborers in the North were causing through unionizing. And, and so it was kind of a, an open invitation to come to come South, look, look at what we have and Bring your capital. Invest your money here. Right. And that version of the New South narrative is incredibly important because, of course, what that that mythology that Henry Grady is creating, what it omits is like, you know, this is a world where white supremacy is white rule is being reestablished in coercive ways, marginalizing African-Americans and using violence and extra-legal methods to sort of shrink opportunity, um, the rise of that that labor class, that labor class that's available of African-Americans, some of them are being coerced into labor, right? Because as people like Douglas Blackburn and Blackman has pointed out, um, you have the rise of uh, convict labor, mm-hmm. right? The the criminalization of black bodies in public space was a way for Southern industry to achieve these these margins that were so important in terms of Southern success, right? Mm-hmm. Like the South, the New South is a low tax uh, space, right? right? Like the government's retrenched, mm-hmm. they, they don't spend money. Mm-hmm. Um, but convict labor is often employed to, to achieve some of these transformations. Mm-hmm. Railroad track is laid by convict labor. Uh, roads are made by convict labor. Convict labor is put to work in uh, the iron mills uh, in, in Birmingham. It's put to work in the turpentine camps in Florida. It's put to work uh, in the naval stores and timber industry, um, in you know, across the region, mm-hmm. right? It's black people in chains who were arrested for charges of vagrancy, mm-hmm. right? Like three black people together could be arrested for vagrancy, and it was not uncommon for a black person to be uh, charged with vagrancy, get thirty days, and then through some series of infractions, be in jail for ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the New South that we laud, that immigrated lauded, um, required a kind of coercive white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's the other part of the story, right? Like, you know, I wrote about the, 
the New South um, in my master's thesis. And I wrote about the um, um, when I was doing research for my, my master's thesis, and I wrote about the Good Rose campaign in mm. Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Rose were assigned to modernity. What what they didn't talk about is how much concrete labor was used to make those roads. Right. And I was always always like shocked mm-hmm. that that modernity in this in this context um part of that was criminalizing black bodies and criminalizing black political participation because this is also part of the new south uh, process is the rising hostility to black people being able to act in any way shape or form in the public sphere uh and so um, the Florida story is both emblematic of that broader Southern story, I would argue, but also different, mm-hmm. right? And that's one of the um, last episode we talked about a little bit about knowledge creation mm-hmm. and, in the context of this project and projects we've done with students that are using digital tools. And I would argue one of the things that we've we've talked about a lot and we sort of gleaned from our looking at the documents is how the sort of New South Florida experience differs mm-hmm. in in some meaningful ways when you look at a place like Winter Park, right. uh, even at the same time as it sort of reaffirms that broader, darker story mm-hmm. that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about that. Right. Like, um, well, and I think your story from the Maitland perspective mm-hmm. probably captures that mm-hmm. a lot. So, right. Well, uh, thinking about Florida in the uh, 1870s and 1880s and, you know, Florida does have a, a, a slave, slave holding past, a plantation past, but it's in the Northern uh, part of the state. And so uh, the area that we're studying, which is uh, central Florida, Maitland and winter park, this is really a frontier and, and it, it's 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 not it's very sparsely settled uh in the 1870s you have homesteaders here uh right described as very poor and i i believe that included both black and white homesteaders because the right. the, the southern homestead act opened up land in florida for settlement and included african-american african-american and, and right, so exactly. but but there are not that many people living in this area um in the uh, early 1870s, but by 1875, um, African-Americans and whites from the South and from the North are coming to this area and uh, finding opportunities. Uh, And and for African-Americans, it's work on railroads and in the citrus groves uh, to the North. Timber. Timber. But, but here in Sanford, in this area, sort of this area around Winter Park and, uh, and, and uh, Maitland and, and Sanford, it's the beginnings of the citrus industry with Henry Sanford and a Bel Air Grove right. and the extension right, of the, exactly. the railroad yeah. south. And so African-Americans are actually migrating south for opportunity from Georgia and Alabama. You have whites coming into the area from other parts of the south, but you also have northerners, uh, wealthy white northerners, uh, many of them uh, members of the Republican Party. Um, right. They might have been described as um, carpetbaggers in the past, but some of them are not really particularly politicized. I mean, they may be just coming down here for um, 
for health, health right they're right, maybe yeah. looking for a, a, a winter residence they get here and just discover the beauty of the area and and there are opportunities here for investment so this is their their chance to create a society not on top of a, of a former existing a pre-existing culture right that this, this right. New south is a little different because it is in a place that has not been previously um settled and developed Right. And, you know, it's important to first to recognize that Florida is a highly sparsely populated place um, in a way that I think is difficult for people today to understand. But it was it was advertised by the state government in that 1870s period as the frontier you could afford. Mm -hmm. Right, because of course, you know, it's really expensive to to make your way west, which was the other frontier, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we're we're talking about the post a lot of Western movies. Mm -hmm. I like to point out the students, a lot of Western movies, the period that that's happening is this period, right? It's the period after the Civil War where like, you know, Billy the Kid and gunfighters and range wars and all that stuff. That's happening around now. And so people are going out west and there's this sort of like industrialization with mining and with cattle. There's a, a kind of transformation happening. And within a you know, very short period, the frontier will be closed, mm -hmm. right? Like by the time we get to 1890, um, the frontier by the U.S. Census Bureau definition will be gone. Mm -hmm. um, but in this pivotal period, that mad rush west where opportunities at some level you know, it's an imaginary landscape, but in some ways, opportunity is shrinking because land is being gobbled up by like this sort of big transformation. But Florida is a is a frontier that you can afford. A slogan that I think was very appropriate and points to what you're you're talking about. And Central Florida, in particular, is a frontier you can get to, right? Because of St. John's River. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that made Sanford such an important place is the massive steamboat. Um, dock there, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and you can go online if you're so inclined to listen to the podcast and go find a picture of the steamboat dock at Lake Monroe in Sanford. Mm -hmm. Sanford, this is really Sanford's heyday. Like we, you know, tragically, most people, if they know Central Florida and they know Sanford, they know it in the context of Trayvon Martin today. Mm -hmm. But um. If we go back in time, the heyday of Sanford is the period we're talking about. Mm -hmm. This is the Sanford is the gateway, Central Florida. So many people uh, arrive at, in Jacksonville and float down to St. John's on a steamboat mm -hmm. on the plant line, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Henry Plant steamboat train hotel combo mm -hmm. that he has created in competition with Henry Flagler, who has his railroad hotel steamboat combo uh and this is making florida accessible um and in the winter park case um lauren chase and oliver chapman are are two examples of those new englanders who are coming here both of them businessmen mm -hmm. um but chase in particular first comes to, to the Winter park area to central area because of his health and like many northerners uh, of this period uh, of course, again, one of those factoids that we sometimes gloss over, but we talk about in our survey courses, probably, we, you know, 
this is a time where a lot of people are suffering from a kind of nervous condition. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also uh, suffering con- for consumption, which is a quite quite a common um, ailment in this period. Both of which um, doctors would would say go to Florida, mm-hmm. right? Like go to a warm climate mm-hmm. that will help you. Like go to a tropical climate that will help with your your respiratory problems. Mm-hmm. Go to this one, like slower the tropical right. um, landscape is supposed to that that slower pace is supposed to help with the nerves. Right, uh, and so a lot of rich people are, are sent to Florida. Right, right. Well, the and, um, and the thesis that I I sat on today, uh, Sarah Thorncroft, her argument that was that there was also a sporting culture around hunting, right. and that yes. the Berry Hall, which is in it, is not far from Sanford. Uh, that was, right. Uh, a, a uh, sort of a resort for uh, northern uh, hunters. They would do quail hunts, and the, you know the the, the Berry House and Museum has the hunting law, the book of of catches and birds that were 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 shot, and and so through that she's interpreted that side of it, which is another attraction, right, to these northerners. Come right, down, yeah, come down, yeah. and improve your health, and and maybe re- reclaim your manliness, right, and and uh, right. uh, participate in this this activity. So. There are a lot of things that, that are drawing people to Florida, and it has this kind of Eden-like quality for a lot of people who come here and see it for the first time. Uh, Lewis Lawrence is, is the character in my story, coming down from Utica, New York, and he's traveling the world and then finally also travels to the United States and, and finds himself in uh, Maitland. And, and for him, it's, it's just a, a wonder. The lakes, uh, it, it's, he just sees this as in Eden in many different ways, because for him, it's a Southern state that, that has the potential to be Northernized, right? That, that hasn't been spoiled by, right. by that histor- history, you know, that, that the other Southern states, the legacy of, of other Southern states, this part of Florida is just open for experimentation and, and the, the planning of a, of a new world, a new, new social order. You're right. planting the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, the party of Reconstruction in Florida and, and, and creating a foothold here in central Florida. Right. And, you know, and it's, it's interesting because the New Englander um, as a sort of like defining actor in the story of central Florida is so important. Chase, too, mm-hmm. uh, born in, in New Hampshire, um, you know, worked in, in Massachusetts. Um, served in the in the Massachusetts mm-hmm. uh, regiment during the Civil War, mm-hmm. um, and and was a man who made his fortune mm-hmm. uh, in sort of like business, and but came down and was a good friend of of Lewis Lawrence. Right, like, knew him, uh, was an early investor mm-hmm. in the Winter Park Land Company that he and Oliver Chapman put together as they started. Uh, they they bought the the acres at, and started laying out the town, and Winter Park is a planned town. It's mm-hmm. a planned community, mm-hmm. and and Lewis Lawrence is one of those people who bought one of the larger lots, right? That's the right. front, the cottage lot, right? Uh, and and um, I, I believe since the first telegraph message from the telegraph office, actually, he did. That's right. right. But, New Year's Day, uh, eighteen eighty three, I believe. Uh, yeah. No north, no south. 
he sent that. No, <laughs> seriously. So he, he sent that to President Arthur. No north, no south. I think the vision, right, right was that this would become that this could be a post uh, a, a post secessionist South. Right. I mean, it's actually a, a reconciled South, but reconciled not in the way that uh, the redeemers viewed reconciliation. This was this was um, an attempt to realize a vision for reconstruction that in some ways had already been compromised, compromised away. Right. right? So my, my uh, research on Lawrence is that he was a staunch, he had been an abolitionist. He was, he was a self, uh, every, it's, it's hard to say self-made, but he was a very wealthy man. Uh, and, but, but very active in um, social reform movements in upstate New York, made millions in the timber industry, was very active in the Republican Party, supported the radical wing of the party, and was very, very disappointed in the party's abandonment of blacks in the South. And, and so um, when he came South, he, he really didn't have, I don't think, a plan to, to become a political actor. He was really just looking for a new opportunity. He bought uh, a grove, a small grove, and, and became really interested in experimenting in citrus cultivation. But being in Florida, he discovered this problem. And the problem was that African-Americans like Joe Clark, who had moved, who had migrated from Georgia to uh, Maitland, that these, right. these, these men and, and women who had moved to this area, uh, ex-slaves, many of them, if not most of them ex-slaves, that they had nowhere to live, that, that they were basically living in shanty towns and they were be being denied access to property. And so for Lawrence, uh, he's coming out of an ideology that, I, I, that, that historians of, uh, have defined as moral capitalism. And, and, right. and so the idea is that, you know, labor and capital can work together. But, but he, he sees this and says, I can do something about this. Um, I, I think that... Um, I think we can. I think that we can create uh, a community, a model community, uh, in which African Americans can own their own homes, can have a decent church, can can live and 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 uh, create a world that is uh, respectable, right? That that they can show that 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 there's the state of degradation that is associated with black life is a product of discrimination and poverty, and and so he believes in this model and creates uh, a subdivision in collaboration with Joe Clark. Right. And so, right. so you have this experimentation with a planned community, a planned African-American subdivision in, in uh, Maitland, it's called, sometimes called Lawrenceville, but eventually is, comes, is named Eatonville uh, for, for the, the, the other party to this exchange, a, a white Northern Union man named uh, Josiah Eaton. So that's that's a planned community as well. So what we have now is in Maitland, the subdivision of Eatonville and in Winter Park, you have Hannibal Square being designed into uh, the plans for Winter Park. And so I'm going to kick it back to you here to, to talk about how these two communities fit into our thinking about New South economy. Right. So one of the things that we see when we look at uh, the formation of Winter Park and and uh, Maitland slash Eatonville, and then then Eatonville and Winter Park, and it's important to recognize that uh, Eatonville is incorporated as a town in 1887, so is Winter Park. Prior to that, this area um, 
Maitland is the municipality that's incorporated first. Right. Right? Yes. Predates both of these communities. Uh, and one of the things that um, I always like to point out to people, you know, we're in this sort of landscape where if you're voting and you're African-American, you're voting in Maitland. Right? Mm-hmm. Like the African-American voters are voting in Maitland and as Scott has pointed out in his um, analysis, you know, and, and Daniel Hurston writes about this, there are enough black voters in who are able to vote that they elect black town officials in Maitland, mm-hmm. right? right. And, and then when Eatonville is created, those black town officials, local black people are voting in that town, right? So it removes these black voters from the roads. And so you can make an argument it's self-segregation, um, but, you know, they're clearly sort of like separating out. And at the same time, the choice that that happens in, in Winter Park and, and just like um, Lewis Lawrence, Lauren Chase uh, articulates a vision for Winter Park uh, in his writings and his advertising, and he puts into the the, the town design um, small Negro lots, much smaller than the other lots that he's selling to Northern investors. Uh, these are tiny lots, and, and their size means that they're affordable for African Americans. In, in a region that increasingly is hostile to African Americans owning land and having access to, to land, uh, because of course land is associated with African Americans having independence. And so he sells these lots and he creates, he, and he creates this space called Hamble Square and he sells these lots and that creates a kind of uh, black residents and many of which have been homesteaders in the area, Scott points out. But now they're they're buying lots and building homes, and they're also working in the businesses that Chase is putting together. In particular, um, the Seminole Hotel, which is a massive luxury hotel that requires labor. But also, he makes it clear in in the in in his language in the brochures that he's sending to places like Boston, places like Chicago, that these African Americans who are living here are also going to be available to work in the groves. Mm-hmm. And the the logic that uh, is articulated in the newspaper accounts and, and in, uh, the, in the sort of proposals for buying into this lifestyle is that now uh, even for wealthy people, this is not just simply you're buying this land, you're building a house. The groves are an integral part of the eco economic ecosystem that you're 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 buying into because you buy the lot, you plant the groves, you build the house, and then the income generated by orange culture, by the, the citrus industry, will pay for everything, right? Like, you, you're basically, you're not just simply buying a plot of land, you're buying into an economic juggernaut that is the orange industry. And, and of course, if you look at uh, Winter Park in this period, there are a number very large packing houses and packing operations located within the city that are taking advantage of all these orange groves in the area. So you can grow these oranges very quickly, uh, pick them with the help of African-American labor Mm -hmm. and, and take them to the packing house and the packing house. And of course this is a railroad stop. And so they can be very quickly get on the Florida Atlantic railroad and be off the market. Mm -hmm. And so it's a perfect sort of, virtuous circle mm. um, on uh, that requires African-American labor 
and requires African Amer- and and allows for African Americans to participate, especially in the Win Park contest and in Eatonville's perspective, as you have you discovered in some of your research, uh, the the landowners in Eatonville, the landowners mm-hmm. in, in Hannibal Square, both share is that they're growing food for themselves, mm-hmm. but also growing it for this sort of luxury market right. in the region. And mm-hmm. you can talk a little bit about the the truck yeah. garden that you, you discovered right. in your research. Right. So so one of the interesting things about Eatonville being the, the uh, advertised as one of the first, if not the first, historic black independent incorporated black township, it gets a lot of press coverage uh, around the country, uh, an all black town, uh, all black town officers. Um, it, it, it's um, and, and the beauty of that is we have accounts, interviews with Joe Clark, one of the founders I mentioned him earlier. Uh, he uh, he he's asked, how do you support yourselves? And he says, well, the people of Eatonville, uh, we're able to work in these hotels and we're able to work in the houses as domestic workers in the in the houses or, and we're able to uh, uh, participate in in the wider economy. So they're 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 living outside of Eatonville, but also people are bringing things to Eatonville. They have a sawmill. Um, and it's kind of a, an agricultural labor colony, but also uh, a domestic labor co- colony as well. But they have this uh, ability, they, as Joe Clark points out, to su- sustain themselves because they have their own gardens. They have, uh, some of them have groves. They're selling fruit from their groves, but they also have, they can grow enough food just to, to maintain themselves. And so there is this kind of self-sufficiency that, that goes along with this political independence. And that's, that's celebrated in all of the early accounts of Eatonville. Right. And, and this really creates like a different context when we think about how we're describing the Black experience at this same period in the South, right? And so, um, you know, famously, we, we talk about the 1880s and, and by the time it goes, of course, to the 1890s as the Nadir, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the darkest moments of uh, African-American experience mm-hmm. coming after, out of, out of Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. But what's being articulated here um, at least in, the, in this period from roughly 1880 to 1895 is a really strong narrative of African-Americans being able to cope mm-hmm. and being able to sort of function uh, in this landscape. Uh, and, and this is interesting in part because another element that, that we sort of talked about um, in something that... Um, in the book I recently put out, recently my colleague and I, Walter Greeson, who's the dean of the Honors College at Monmouth University, we put together a, a primary and secondary source reader called City to Imagine. And in there, we really we talk about this idea of the Tuskegee universe. And Eatonville is part of um, the Tuskegee sort of like network because R.C. Calhoun, who is the founder of the Robert Hungerford Norman Industrial School, is a graduate of Tuskegee Institute. And indeed, Booker T. Washington um, visits the Hungerford School. There's a Booker T. Washington Hall at Hungerford School. And Washington does a tour of Florida, uh, a 
a whistle stop store by railroad, private railroad car. And and he's very the his Rosenwald School uh, initiative is very active in in Florida, and in, in a number of Rosenwald schools are set up in Central Florida. And so, again, when we talk about how uh, African Americans, at least in this particular area, are thinking about opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you can see in the pages of something like the Winter Park Advocate, and what I think you can see in the pages of the Evil Speaker, mm-hmm. and you get from um, the things that Zonia Hurston writes about um, the communities that African Americans here see themselves able to navigate um, this worsening condition mm-hmm. um, being articulated by white people because they have economic wherewithal to do things like pay the poll tax, right. um, and they own property. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's this question of allyship. Right. Right? You have right. these white Republican allies mm-hmm. that are working with them and, and went apart. You know, mm-hmm. I would argue that Gus Henderson and Lauren Chase are very closely aligned uh, in their goals and in their actions. Mm-hmm. And, and part of Chase's logic and part of Chase's practice is always to acknowledge um, the success and contributions of African Americans within the community of Winter Park, within Hannibal Square, to laud them, but also to sort of like structurally make sure um, when a white school gets built, a black school gets built, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When, uh, and, and so that there is a uh, an equity there, mm-hmm. and it's that same idea of equity and and access that I would argue that when you think about a person like Zorner Hurston, mm-hmm. who uh, is probably the most famous, famous person who, who came from Eatonville, she um, scandalously was against desegregation um, and often painted as a black conservative because she was against desegregation. But if you understand the origin uh, of the community she came from, what she argued for is you don't need to desegregate. You need to make sure you have this equitable access. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly the legacy that shaped mm-hmm. uh, uh, these communities. Mm-hmm. That this, this idea of equitable access that had nothing to do, per se, with race, except that there was a recognition on the part of white people mm-hmm. that they needed to make sure that they supported African Americans on their journey Toward success, mm-hmm. uh, which is in fact what Booker T. Washington argued mm-hmm. in his Atlanta Compromise speech, mm-hmm. right? Like we we interpret it as he's saying um, segregation is okay, but he also says you, white to white people, you have an obligation to help African Americans in their efforts to educate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, when I think about this, sort of like what the Winter Park case really mm-hmm. sort of highlights it's these intricacies around this idea mm-hmm. of equity, race, mm-hmm. property, and power. Right. But I guess what I, w- I want to add to this is the idea of the importance of the vote, right? So, right. so when um, Chase, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure if it mattered much to Lawrence, uh, but, but I think for Chase, this was, as you mentioned, an alliance. And the, the fact that African-Americans had a vote Meant that they were a constituency that was vital to this to the ruling, uh, founding government of the incorporate. So you know maybe you could say a few words about the incorporation 
the role of African Americans in the incorporation of Winter Park, and uh, um, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, yeah. Uh, the, well, yeah, as as you as we you mentioned before, when Winter Park is uh, part of Chase's plan, he has a very and really, I you know at some at some point, I forget the exact moment. Chase sort of like buys out Chapman, mm. and the Winter Park Land Company really is like sort of being driven by Chase's vision, um, and the other investors. But really, Chase is out front, and uh, a series of benchmarks in terms of development. They plot out the town uh, between eighteen eighty one eighteen eighty five. Like they open a some hotel. Um, they get Rollins College to. Um, be in Winter Park, which is a huge deal, right? This sort of like year-round institutional body that is Rollins College. So, like when we talk about the town and gown relationship in Winter Park, mm-hmm. Rollins is so very important to the town, and I, and that's so very true. Mm-hmm. Um, but the next logical step is to push for incorporation, mm-hmm. and many of the people who are living here, many of the white residents, are uneasy about the idea of black people being in the town and there's real resistance to um, the idea of incorporation where black people are going to be part of the town and one sort of like mythology that uh, people are against to come up with like well it's not fair they don't own property and of course Gus Henderson who is newly arrived in, in Winter Park in this period and very quickly becomes involved in local politics and, uh, and is a businessman uh, says no. He writes an editorial in the Lakshmi, which is the paper at the time, and says no, that's not true. In fact, African Americans are property owners and, and business owners, and are dedicated and want Winter Park to succeed. Um, another question that sort of emerges here is a question around temperance, which you know we forget how important the, the sort of like battle around temperance is in the United States. But um, this question of whether or not Winter Park would be dry or Winter Park would be wet was an important question for many people. In fact, the, the state temperance group met in Winter Park um, uh, in the 1880s, and there was a huge concern that the African-Americans might want, might vote for Winter Park to be wet, but they made it quite clear, and, and of course, Henry, uh, again, Gus Henderson was a leading voice here to say, no, no, African-Americans don't want uh, Winter Park to be wet. Um, and, and, and that was another sort of like hurdle that was overcome. But eventually, in order for incorporation to happen, you have to have registered voters on your side. And when it comes to year-round residents in Winter Park, there are more year-round African-American residents than there are those seasonal white residents, right, who are buying, who bought property and built houses, but come down for the season and leave in the summer, right? And so they don't necessarily have residency. And so it's African-American along with white, black, African-American Republicans along with white African-American Republicans that make the plurality. And literally a third of the incorporators are African-American, and they own property in Winter Park, but also own property in Edenville, as we well know. Mm-hmm. And they vote for the founding of the town. And this sort of cements this sort of biracial ally, you know, biracial coalition version of government in, in Winter Park. And mm-hmm. you have two aldermen from Hannibal Square 
um, Walter Simpson and Frank R. Israel, and who serve on the town council. And this is a very active town council, very dedicated to improvement, builds, builds white school, build black schools, do road improvement, um, very attentive to, to the fast growing and success that is Winter Park. Uh, and very much fits into that New South economy, right? Like the, the New South Florida economy, right? And, and Winter Park is, is working perfectly in the model that Chase and Chapman envisioned at the very beginning. You have these residents, they're buying land, there's the orange groves, the hotel, it's so beautiful. Um, of course, um, President Cleveland visits Winter Park. It's working perfectly. Uh, and it really is a testament to the maybe the leverage the sort of natural beauty, leverage the orange culture, and forge really meaningful partnerships with African Americans in Winter Park to allow for this political coalition and, and make for a successful town government. And everyone seems happy about it, except those white um, Democrats who right away who write to the state legislature. And of course, as I talked about before, um, this leads to the detachment of Hannibal Square uh, and sets up um, that period where Hannibal Square is outside the town boundary, but of course, it's still an integral part of the social fabric of the town. Um, but, you know, the dream of that New South Florida economy mm -hmm. um, belies um, what we understand about the transformation of the South in this period. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it totally dismisses it, but it does make clear there are deliberate choices being made by some whites to pursue stripping away African Americans. And there was a choice that some whites made to say no mm -hmm. to that. And, and to bring Eatonville back into the story here as well, um, they too played a role in the, in, as you mentioned earlier, the incorporation of Maitland. Um, whether or not they held offices, it's a little unclear. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston says they held the top, several of the top offices. Um, other records don't necessarily confirm that. They point to a, a white man as the mayor, Josiah Eaton, in fact, uh, for whom Eatonville is named. But um, regardless, they, they certainly were important to uh, and perhaps vital to the incorporation of Maitland and the fact that they were uh, separated um, is interpreted uh, variously uh, by Zora Neale Hurston as a fully voluntary move. Right. But, but by others as being in some ways invited to leave. Right. Right. That part of the solution that was happening too was um, that, uh, Eatonville, um, right. So, so part of this is is that they were no longer that, that rather than being a town with a fairly roughly balanced white black population, uh, the creation of Eatonville means you'll have all black Eatonville and effectively all white Maitland, and right. and it, and and that is less threatening, obviously, to the political order of Maitland, and and it really represents a victory for the same class of Democrats. They didn't have to go to the state legislature to do it, though, right? They may, they, right. maybe there were other kinds of incentives. Perhaps there was some appeal for Joe Clark and others to to be uh, 
to have self-governance. I mean, I don't want to under underestimate um, the, the the appeal of of self-governance. Um, I think the difference is that in Winter Park you have se- several years of biracial governance and a sense with of of a much more integrated, fully integrated um, black-white alliance and and civic um, identity. And that by the time the gerrymandering begins, those who have been a part to, are part of this biracial government don't want to dissolve that. Aren't, are, right. are not willing to go the route of Eatonville. Don't want that. That is not a solution that appeals to them. Yeah, exactly. And and they are forced into that um, space by um, the actions of a determined, yes, politically connected cadre who basically move around the local level and go directly to the state legislature, right? right? right. So it's a special state legislative action mm-hmm. that um, deems the, the town boundary in, in, in Winter Park uh, illegal and requires a new election uh, and a new town boundary be drawn. And with that new town boundary be drawn, mm-hmm. Hamble Square is not in it. And therefore, um, the city the city leadership changes its clear primarily by the removal of that sort of interracial cooperative leadership and replacing it with mm-hmm. uh, a more conservative um, leadership, basically. Right, and you see a transition to a, a, the, really what the beginnings of the Jim Crow era. Uh, right. That, that, that this, this community, this model, these model communities are going to be transformed into, they're going to become much more like native, segregated, southern uh, communities with black, either, uh, uh, you know, with, with uh, a really effectively um, disfranchised black populations, right? Exactly, right. They may have control over their communities, but they have no impact on the, um, on, on the areas that whites control, that those, those towns that had been created with black votes were no longer, uh, you know, that they had been effectively removed from those two towns that they played such a vital role in creating. Right. And this, you know, very quickly puts Winter Park and back into the more traditional um, narrative mm. of the New South, right? right? Because African-Americans sort of like disappear uh, at some level from the public sphere because they're subsumed mm-hmm. into um the political landscape, and of course, with the restrictions in terms of voting and, and the white only primary, African Americans are unable to be elected. Uh, and, yeah. and strangely, of course, or mm-hmm. historical note, the last time a black elected official uh, was a black person was elected in Winter Park was 1891, right? Mm-hmm. When they elected. Uh, Frank R. Isabel mm-hmm. and the Walter Center. There haven't been a black elected official in Winter Park since mm-hmm. the 1890s. Right. And unlikely to be so in the future. And and I think one of the other factors that undermines that biracial alliance is that, that the these white these wealth these founders, right? Uh, Lauren Chase, Lewis Lawrence. Lewis Lawrence dies in 1886, one year before Eatonville is incorporated as an independent township. He's not there to either ar- to argue for their incorpor- for their inclusion or to 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 maybe uh, you know 
make add a voice against their uh, independence. And in uh, in in Winter Park, um, you know, a lot of these founders leave. Lauren Chase leaves, right? right? He he goes yeah, back he north. Yeah, he leaves. Yeah, and goes back and north. And that's not yeah. unusual in Maitland. Uh, I haven't studied this thoroughly, but a lot of those names that are on the street signs around here, they didn't stay. They went off to other opportunities in Tampa and other places. And so, you know, the children, it may be that those families left with them or that the children stayed on and maybe they went native, right? I mean, but that's... Right. Their context was not that that outsider context. No, no. Their context was not that outsider. They become southernized. Right. uh, White southernized. And, uh, and, And so that and and I think you're getting at this too, is this memory of this period is lost as well. So not only is there a kind of transformation of these communities, but that the memory of these these uh, brief eras of, of biracial cooperation and, and, and shared governance is in effect written out of the history of the towns. Right. And there's no one to, to celebrate that. And at some level, um, if it wasn't for some of those little like hard document work that we've done we we wouldn't even really know no. uh, some of the intricacies associated with with this and that's another another one of the things that makes this this project uh, so interesting right. um, so when we talk about new south you know uh, I think what we're what we're trying to do is think about that historiographical story in the Florida context and add a little nuance mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. it. Uh, and and I hope that uh, for those of you who are listening to this and and, and are interested in you know what what other things could can I read about about the New South? Well, I would definitely say check out um, some of the classic works around about the New South, like New Men, New City, New South. Uh, they get a sense of like the different classes of Southern leaders that emerge, um, but. Uh, a really important book to read in terms of like this question of race and power is a book by Paul Ortiz called Emancipation Betrayed, um, which really sort of like looks at this last that last decade of the nineteenth century um, and right up into the first two decades of the twentieth century, and sort of looks at those sort of working worsening conditions that African Americans are facing in this period. Um, I think those are those are really important books, um, and. Looking at Florida, there's a there's a book called The New History of Florida, a collection of essays that really sort of like stakes out some of the big themes of Florida historiography. It's an old book, but a classic book, and I think it's really helpful. Um, our friend and colleague Robert Casanello has done a great book on Jacksonville, mm-hmm. uh, where it really looks at questions about uh, citizenship and property in the 1870s and the fight over control of public space. I think is really important, to, which really sort of goes into some of the things we've been talking about here today. Um, and if you're curious about these these questions, a, a journal that both Scott and I really like is uh, Southern Spaces, which is an open source journal out of um, the Emory University. And they usually have really great stuff, uh, both in terms of contemporary South, but also in terms of historical South. So southernspaces.org is a great open source, but that means that it's not behind a paywall. We can't, it's really difficult for us most of the time to direct you to accessible scholarly work because it's not really accessible, it's behind a paywall. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of open source journals that Scott and I uh, like, and one of them is uh, Southern Spaces. Mm-hmm. In, in particular, they would have stuff on this period uh, and, and things, and they have a variety of different kinds of things, like lectures and things like that. They're, they're really helpful to try to understand the landscape. You, you got anything else, Scott? <laughs> no, I think that that sums it up. I mean, it, it is a rich field of uh, study, and um, there's some older works: uh, "New South Creed" by Paul Gaston, and uh, my advisor Ed Ayers, "The Promise of the New South." Uh, oh, right, of course. Quite yeah, a yeah. bit. I think what's interesting for us here is to think about Florida in that context, and that's that's pushing me um, to to think about merging the literatures of, of Florida and of the of the South. Sometimes Florida gets written out of the South and, and it is unique. Right. It's distinctive, but there certainly are, are uh, strong, um, you know, linkages to the South. And, and I think that's what's making the, our study really interesting is that, um, that, that the demographics of this area are fairly unique and, and create the, create, create the conditions that give rise to this, this, this moment uh, that we're, we've been describing. Right. And, that's a, I think a glimpse into like the bigger, bigger question of of the New South. Um, this is the question as we talk about in the previous episode. We think about retelling the story of Winter Park. What are some of the things that we keep in mind as we retell the story? What are some of the things that shape our our approach to like these are important points that we have to factor in? Well, this this whole question of the New South. And its meaning and how we sort of understand where the park within it are are really important questions for for us as as historians thinking about this question, mm-hmm. uh, this project. So, uh, thanks as always, Scott, for taking the time to talk to talk to me. Well, thank you for uh, including me in this. Um, uh, it's been a pleasure uh, uh, to be part of this. I know it's sort of the beta version of reframing history, and um, it's been fun sort of working it out with you and experimenting with anchor. Uh, as a as a platform for podcasting, right? And you know, uh, if you're um, catching us on iTunes or catching us on some other like, podcasting platform, as Scott mentioned, yeah, we're we're using Anchor. Um, we've been doing it very DIY, and we we sort of get on and we think a little bit about what we're going to talk about, <laughs> and then we have a conversation and. Uh, always helpful for us to, to talk about ideas. That's a lot of what academics do in part because that's really helpful for us to sort of like generate like different interpretations and pathways. So uh, this is an extension of that, that work that, that we, we do all the time, right. but we're making it public. So it's a public humanities practice as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so thanks for listening. And uh, stay tuned for uh, the next episode of Reframing History. Um, look for us on the internet. And you can check out Scott at scottfinch.com, right? Uh, and yeah. can... I think that still works. <laughs> that still works, right? History, history.scottfrench.com. Try that. I'm, I'm history.scottfrench.com. I'm to a new platform, my website. Right, yeah. yeah. And you, you can check me out at julianchambliss.com. Uh, both Scott and I are on Twitter. Uh, I'm at um, Julian Chambers and Scott is at Scott French, right? Right, S C O T one T, one T. Right. He's like a European. That's Scott. right. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and so thanks for listening and uh, thanks for joining me, Scott. And we'll see you on the internet later.